We're the Nada Grande Boys. I'm Rodney Wood. And I'm Kyle Jackson. Welcome to the Nada Grande Outdoors podcast where we hunt it forward. Turn on the mics. Make sure all the mics are on. I got all the mics on. Um, yes, I forgot to turn on all the mics. This whole new system is, <laughs> is, is, is baffling me. Every evolution takes like six months yeah. to get used to. So, and, and we probably, you know, people are probably tired of hearing this, but um, one thing that they've got, our listeners got to understand is we're just sitting here having a conversation, um, and our guests may not have heard it. Uh, when we started recording this, we started on a phone. That We just set a phone in between me and Kyle and talked to the phone, and that was it. And then we got this little mic that we plugged into the phone. Um, and then we got a bigger mic that we plugged into the phone. And then um, we got an actual and recorder. Then we got an actual, this, this recorder here, and we just had a mic that went on top of it, and that was it. Um, and then Kyle got us some actual like mic stands with real mics and everything. Uh, but we had two of them, and when we have guests, it, so we got these headsets. And now we've got a total of six mics, four headsets, two regular mics. But every time we get something new, we mess something up. <laughs> <laughs> well, it looks very sophisticated. Right, right. We feel like we're big players now. Yeah, we're, what's that? What's that? Fake it till you make it. <laughs> right, pretty much, pretty much. So We're still uh, faking it. <laughs> I don't know if we're faking it. So we're, I, uh, You're I'm hoping it. I'm hoping that's what people like about the podcast is that we're not faking it. We're just yeah. genuine couple of guys trying to figure crap out. Right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, today we have with us Kara Romero. You are the chairperson, no? executive director, executive director, glorified so, secretary of the uh, New Mexico Council of Outfitters and Guides. Um, happy to have her here. I've gotten the chance to know Carrie over a couple of years. We actually didn't meet until this year. Yeah. But or one time in the legislature. One time in the legislature, that's yeah. right. Um, but I've known her, know, known of her for many years now um, and worked with her kind of off and on behind the scenes. But uh, we finally kind of caught up with each other at Dallas Safari Club and made a plan to, to get her on the podcast, so... Here she is. Yeah. Welcome. Very Happy nice. to be here. Thanks, guys. So, um, I guess to to start out officially start out the podcast, other than all the pre precursor stuff that we yeah. talked about the the tech. Um, tell us a little bit about the Council of Outfitters and Guides. What you guys do? Um, kind of what your goals are. The mission of the council. Okay, so the uh, New Mexico Council of Outfitters and Guides is a 501c6 nonprofit. We advocate the hunting and fishing industry, specifically the outfitter and guide segment. We do all kinds of different things, but our primary role is advocacy for the industry. We, you know, basically just make sure that the laws stay friendly for individuals who want to earn a livelihood as an outfitter or guide. And then we also do uh, the trade shows as marketing promotional efforts. We attend all the game commission meetings. We have monthly meetings with the Forest Service. Uh, keep the members up to date on any changes uh, in the industry. But our primary role is, is legislative-based. Okay. Um, and so just talking about your membership stuff, kind of um, 
how many members do you have? What does it take to be a member? All that stuff. Okay. Walk us through that. Uh, so we have roughly 300 members, and that's broke down by different levels of membership. There's an outfitter membership, a guide membership, and then we have just a sportsman membership. Um, there's there's roughly between 200 and 260, depending on the year, uh, licensed outfitters in the state. And we represent about 85% of the full-time guys. It's not mandatory to be a member of the Council of Outfitters and Guides, but most of the full-time guys are. Um, and then we have a, a guide membership that we just started about uh, five or six years ago, and it's steadily grown. It's actually our largest growing segment of membership. Okay. And um, so I, I, you're talking about, you know, the mission is mainly legislative, trying to keep laws friendly and stuff like that. Um, how does that translate for members? What what input do they have? Um, yeah, and, and kind of where are you guys looking to go with it? So we have a 10-member board, mm-hmm. which basically tells me what to do. They're, they're my boss. <laughs> um, we try to shoot... Well, our bylaws say that we have to have biannual meetings, two, two meetings a year, and, and we like those to be, you know, face-to-face meetings. But usually we have more than that because, um, you know, we need to have a board vote on one thing or another throughout the year to sort of dictate which direction the council goes on, on one issue or another. And um, we don't – we try not to do anything without a majority of the member base – um, input and sometimes we'll do that through surveys. Sometimes we do it through email, just various different ways. But we try not to do anything that we don't um, have like a majority of the people on board. That's kind of outfitters important. and guides. The yeah. the sportsman uh, membership is is uh, a little bit less connected to the voting base of of the council. Kinda it's more like, like a, an informational like type an thing. Associate membership. Yeah. Where yeah. Mm-hmm. It's informational, and you get you get the updates right. from what's going on. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, what are I guess what are some of the issues that you guys are are working or I guess because you you guys I've seen you at most every game commission meeting. You guys voice your your opinion on on the a lot of the issues. What are some issues that you guys are working? towards or or working on right now uh, i i probably guess a few of them you know the the trapping stuff and and some of that uh is probably on your radar but yeah this this year was a 30-day session short session in the legislature next year will be a 60-day session what what are you guys expecting to face coming up yeah, the 60-day, we're expecting the 60-day to be quite a lot of work for the industry. And the 60-days always are because you just don't know what you're going to get. They're what I call a free-for-all session. I mean, if you can get a legislator to carry it, you can pretty much write legislation on, on anything you want. Yeah. So um, those, are, those are the ones where the wildlife industry really sees a lot of not necessarily impact but a lot of work you know you, you're on the defense or the offense and you really have to work hard during the 60-day sessions and this session is not going to be any different you know probably one of our our main uh issues i guess i'd say 
is the resident non-resident divide and it's unfortunate because it's really you know a divide and conquer type thing you know where we should be focused on the more broad uh, hunting anti-hunting issues we spend the majority of our time it seems focusing on the resident non-resident divide yeah why is that i mean what's kind of going on out there that that that's such an issue because i mean we've dealt with it um rodney's looking at his pack like it's doing something wrong all right so (laughs) slight more uh, more technical difficulties more technical difficulties (laughs) um yeah uh, if you if if we release the video you'll be able to see the scramble to get batteries in these headsets right right (laughs) i guess technically you know we pause it and all of that stuff we really didn't have to talk about it no we didn't but but yeah we ran out of batteries so we had to switch batteries real quick (laughs) (laughs) um yeah Talking about resident, we're talking about resident, divide. non-resident stuff, and, and why and watching, is it the watching Carrie squirm a little bit? Which <laughs> gave, me, gave me a second to think. No, about where no, I want to which go with uh, that's. I mean, we've talked about that before. Rodney and I have talked about that. You know, last year, the New Mexico Wildlife Federation came out with an article about how um, the game department was, you know, intentionally screwing the residents out of bighorn sheep tags, and we tore that article apart, um, showing that they were. Blatantly lying to people about that, but they still got that law changed, and now it's not. It was never a law. There's, there's, and there's, you know. Well, the the non-resident quotas are set in in in, in statute. Yeah. But, yeah. but what happened with that particular issue was not changed in law. The statute was not changed. The statute remains the same. Oh. The area of the statute which is gray which allows the director the department director to make a determination an individual determination on how those tags are allocated whether it's done based on the uh, 84% or whether they round up to the fractional you know to make it an even number that's at the director's discretion it's always been at the director's discretion and this particular director chose to go to do that right to go one way whereas previous directors had chosen to go the other way and you know just to sort of correct the record council of outfitters and guides has never been opposed to that we never opposed it publicly we were always on board we had several meetings with the game department to discuss it as a board prior to um you know the the director making a determination yeah and you know, we we strategically didn't want to argue with that because it, it was only about 100 tags. It really didn't make that much of a difference one way or the other, mm-hmm. but it came out as such a black eye on the outfitter side and, and really... Well, and I, it actually shouldn't have come out as a black eye on the outfitter side. Rodney and I, I mean, we can talk yeah. about this a little bit again, but uh, it, it bears, it's worth repeating that that law was being followed. Yeah, the eighty-four percent um, was there when the allocations were made. The roundup happens after the allocations are made, and um, the law was being followed. It was fair across the board. The actual, the article that that we we talked about made the suggestion from the Wildlife Federation that they wanted they wanted to go eighty-five percent resident. And fifteen percent non-resident and cut out the outfitters, and you yeah. know we thought that was completely Wait. stupid. So now I think we're talking about something different. So that's like a new thing that has been 
No, no. It's, it's the same thing. So the article that brought that to our attention, where, where, where we're talking about the Roundup, was written by, um, I don't remember the Brandon guy. Brandon Wynn. Brandon Wynn at the New Mexico Wildlife Federation. And in that article, they were in support of changing it completely to where it was 85% residents and 15% non-residents mm-hmm. and cutting out outfitters completely, which mm-hmm. we're not in support of. Um, and what we really disliked is how they were portraying the data. Mm-hmm. Um, they, well, if we, we want to get technical it. about it, to be the devil's advocate, you know, the outfitting industry, that would actually put more an 85 percent 15 percent split actually puts more tags with the non-residents exactly as it is now on a total tag basis we're getting 10 percent yeah you know what once you throw all of those uh resident only cow tags in and all of the resident only wildlife management area tags on a total tag basis it's 90 10 well and that's residents yeah. are getting 90 percent of the tags. yeah and that's yeah. what and that's you want to drop it down to 85 15 yeah. that's sure, what that's what it. that's what we said is you're cutting you're cutting residents out of the deal now you're you're doing exactly opposite of what you yeah. think you're trying to yeah. do and we're eligible for those outfitting tags and, Absolutely. and that comes back to the original point that you're trying to make what's with the resident non-resident divide and i think so much of it is misperception it's just that a lot of people don't really understand how the non-resident side of the industry works. They don't really understand what they're already getting. And it's more of a supply and demand issue than anything when you've got 140,000 people applying for, you know, 50,000 tags. You're just, you're you're never going to have good odds. It's just, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of residents seem to think that the non-residents are, are stealing from them, and that's that's just not the case. They're really not getting that many of the public draw tags. They're not, no, and they're well, not. and that I think that's the problem. We've talked about this uh, as well on the podcast that the perception is, oh, there's so many you know non-residents coming and hunting. The majority of those are are on land on on private land. Mm-hmm. They're not on public land, um, but people don't understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, and additional to that. The, the point that we want to make with the resident and non-resident is you have to understand, as a resident of New Mexico, you have the vast uh, majority of the odds for drawing a tag in this state. And if you were on the side of wanting to cut out non-residents, well, the, sh- the shoe can be on both feet. You have to understand also you're a non-resident in 49 other states. So if you ever have any aspirations of going to hunt somewhere else, you need to take a serious look at your stance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to go hunt in Idaho. I want to go hunt in Wyoming. I want to go hunt other places. And so who am I to say, yeah, I don't want any non-residents to get tags in New Mexico. That's hypocrisy at its best. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and it's just, it, it, to me, it's just I- idiocy. Yeah. Why can't we as sportsmen stand together on the on, on these topics that, that we all have in common. We're all hunters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Doesn't yeah. Matter, doesn't matter if you're, you know, if you like to hike into the backcountry or pack in the backcountry, if you like to, you know, um, drive the drive the well roads down there around Rosal. A hunter is a hunter, and we're all contributing to the conservation of wildlife. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, it perplexes me that backcountry hunters and anglers would be so resident preference focused. 
The Wildlife Federation, I get. They're primarily a state-based organization. They yep. do have a national uh, association, but they're primarily state-based. But backcountry hunters and anglers are not. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of their membership base are going to be located in other states, a lot of those states in the eastern portion of the country where they want to hunt in the west. Oh, yeah. Why yeah. would you do everything in your power to eliminate exactly. people from being able to hunt in yeah. the west? Yeah. You know, it just doesn't make sense. But on a broader spectrum than that, for me, that I wish residents understood, is the uh, economic side of the amount Mm -hmm. of the license revenue that goes back to the Department of Game and Fish. Non-residents pay anywhere between three and six times as much for their licenses. So while we only get 10% of the draw tags, non-residents, I mean, uh, get 10% of the draw tags, they're paying 40% of the license revenue that comes out of the draw. Yeah. And where, you know, uh, on the private land side, it really does, you know, it's equal opportunity. You, uh, residents can purchase a tag just as good, you know, just as equally as non-residents can. And it, But it really breaks out to about 60-40. 60% of those tags are going to the non-residents. But 80% of the license revenue that comes out of the private land side is and coming from the non-resident. non-resident. Absolutely. So you take opportunity from the non-resident, and all you're doing is putting the license revenue burden back on the resident hunter yeah. because you've got yeah. to make up that and so now, that income and, and, somewhere. And that's the thing. that pe- yeah, You're exactly right. That's what people don't think about is is now in order to make up that revenue, Got to hike, you know, tag prices, Mm -hmm. and then we're going to complain because I never had to pay this much for tags in my life. Yeah, well, you should have thought about that. Well, and in in the current environment, what you'll hear people saying is, "Oh, well, we need to increase license fees, anyways." And there is a license fee increase coming at some point in time. Absolutely, but that's not what I'm talking about here. For the loss of every one non-resident hunter, you have to replace it with four brand new resident hunters. Mm -hmm. Well. There's not enough game for four brand new resident hunters. So you've got to increase the license on that resident hunter. And yeah, maybe the resident is willing to absorb a twenty, a fifty dollar increase, but a three hundred dollar increase. Not gonna there's no way not gonna some happen. of those residents but can absorb a three hundred dollar. Most of the residents can exactly. absorb that. At that point we can go hunt Idaho or right. Colorado. <laughs> right, exactly. Right over the counter. Uh, yeah. You know? Yeah, I mean and you know, they they're so often complain that well. You know, the outfitting industry makes this a rich man's game. When you take opportunity away from the non-residents, you're actually making it a rich residents game. Yeah. Because yeah. the residents can no longer afford because the non-residents are no longer able to fill that void, yeah. that yeah. economic void. Yeah. It's, it's the awesomeness of hunting that's making it a rich man's game. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> that, no, I agree. That's, that's what it I is. Agree. And that's, that's the thing that I try to tell people, you know, when I... When I hear them complain or they come to the shows or whatever and complain about New Mexico and how they're not able to draw a tag, and I'm, I try to tell them, like, that is a sign of a healthy economy. Yeah. Like, there is a set number of tags. There is population goals that we can't go higher than. The fact that we've got this many hunters interested in hunting mm-hmm. this yeah. much game and is actually a really good well, sign. And, that, and it's evidenced by... The fact that when you look at nationwide hunting numbers, yep. that's that's a buzz. You know that that whole thing is a buzzword, you know, or a buzz phrase now about the decline in hunters. New Mexico is one of a couple states who is bucking that trend. Totally, we agree. are adding hunters to our population, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, it's great for 
our conservation efforts because that money goes back to habitat improvement. It's great for our economy, our you know bringing hunters into the state, employing residents within the state in the outfitting and guiding business, um, keeping our rural towns open. You know when they come and hunt and get and get uh, um, hotels and food and gas and all that stuff. So it's it's really. Man, I, I I don't know how. I I just wish that you could like implant that knowledge into the average resident hunter's brain because mm-hmm. it seems like most of them don't think about that. They don't, but because most most of them are thinking about me. Yep, I want to tag me, me. I want to tag, and I want to tag too. I understand that. I would love an oryx tag. I have never drawn an oryx tag, but I don't complain because there's still hunting opportunity. We draw, and, and I'll challenge anybody that says you can't draw a tag in this state. I draw a deer tag every year. Mm-hmm. I draw elk tag two out of three years, all the time. You have to be you have to be willing to go outside of your backyard. Mm-hmm. You have to be willing to step outside of what you you just want if you truly want a tag. You can't just put in for you know two B every year and and then say, well, I haven't been able to draw a deer tag. That's that doesn't even count. That's a duh. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you have you, you've got to. to put in for some some different units, and there's still good deer, good elk in a lot of units. Um, maybe harder to hunt. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but even if it's opportunity you're looking exactly. for, I mean, even to your point on Oryx, I mean, there are gobs and gobs of landowner permit opportunities on the Armendaris Ranch, and. They, you know, their population down there has just exploded. Mm-hmm. They have so many landowner opportunities. They don't know what to do with them. And you can get them pretty reasonably. I yeah. mean, I guess it depends on your definition of reasonable. But but they're not $10,000 no. hunting opportunities. They're they're a yeah. lot more reasonable than that. Yeah. yeah. There, there's a lot of opportunity out there. Um, you know, and I'll draw a tag eventually, an Oryx tag. I have no doubt. Uh, I'm not going to complain about it because I understand I understand why it's that way, uh, and I'm not going to be selfish and put the needs of the orc population uh, and the the state's population above my needs, and that's what people need to start you doing a little your, bit more. Your needs above their needs. Yeah, there we go. That's what I said. <laughs> that's just what I'm just here to do. <laughs> here to keep you keep you in line. <laughs> yeah. Um, again, like I said, I'd love to have one, but I understand why. It, it's a great tag. There, it's a great animal. It's a great trophy. It's great meat. Uh, therefore, it's hard to get. Yeah, and that's not such a bad thing. Well, and so here's the other thing that that a lot of people don't grasp is that that there's a natural ebb and flow in in the populations. You know, the the department tries to manage these animals as best as they can, but wildlife management is messy at best. It's reactive. You're acting off of data that's two to three years old most of the time, um, trying to anticipate what a population is going to do barring all other environmental and climate factors um and so you know we as humans tend to lock on to the things that that we know uh, i hear it all the time uh, about certain areas in the state that oh i remember when there was elk around every corner or you know when it was so easy to draw a broken horn oryx tag well that population grew and grew and they were hunting a bunch of them 
for the purpose of knocking that population back to a manageable size, and now it's at that manageable size, and so guess what? There's less opportunity, so it's going to be harder to draw an orcs tag. Mm-hmm. And you, I mean, that 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 is the root problem. It's a me, me, me. I can't yep. draw a tag. Well, yep. Do you even care about the wildlife? Because that's what hunting is: is a conservation tool to manage that population. I mean, it, it's frustrating. Frustrating. Yeah. yeah. There's another thing that I I really wish that people understood a little bit better about the outfitting industry is what the outfitting industry is bringing to the economy. The every outfitter is a small business owner. Yeah. And they're employing people. In the very ruralest parts of our state where unemployment is oftentimes at the very, very highest, Mm -hmm. they're all paying New Mexico gross receipts taxes. Something that um, I think a lot of resident, you know, public land hunters don't understand is that an outfitter operating in the Forest Service or BLM or any, you know, land management area where, you know, just you or I could go hunting for free. The outfitter is paying 3% of their gross revenue back to the yep. Forest Service in order to operate commercially on those lands. And uh, I, just, I think that that's not really um, capitalized on enough, probably by our industry. And, and so people just aren't aware. But, I mean, we're contributing over a billion dollars annually to the New Mexico economy. And that's just on the hunting side. Fishing side's a little bit more difficult to, you know, tack down because... It's an unregulated industry. Right. But, yeah, um, yeah, on the hunting side, we're contributing over a billion dollars a year. Yeah. It's interesting to me, and I've always thought that, about about why is the hunting side regulated but the fishing side's not, you know. And, and, you know, we may be getting off on a path here, um, but I'd I'd be interested to get your, uh, your opinion on it. I've always thought it would be it it didn't make a lot of sense for game and fish to regulate the outfitting industry in general I, in general oh, okay my thought was that that industry should be regulated by the small business you know the better business whatever whatever does that within New Mexico that's where they should fit it didn't make a whole lot of sense um, because the rules and regulations are still there y- you as and out them as an outfitter or as a guide, they still have to abide by the rules and regulations um, of game and fish. What they're doing is running a business, and that really doesn't fit under game and fish's mission. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's it's something as I understand historically because it predates me. Um, the hunting side of the industry actually, apparently, the Council of Outfitters and Guides was who petitioned the Department of Game and Fish to regulate the industry because there was a lot of, they were having a lot of rogue outfitter problems. And so they they asked the Department of Game and Fish to regulate them. Now, why they didn't go the direction that Colorado went with like a small business bureau, like Dora is what it's called in Colorado. Um, but, you know, I have a lot of guys that outfit in Colorado that also outfit in New Mexico, and they, they like New Mexico's structure better. Yeah. They actually prefer to be under the wing of Game and Fish rather than the business sector just because Game and Fish actually understands a little bit better the nature of their business. Um, so a lot of the, you know, New Mexico guys kind of, you know, there is, there's a bit of a struggle. It's, it's hard when your regulatory agency is the same as your enforcement agency. It causes some problems, but, um, you know, I think 
for the most part, what we've decided on the hunting side lately is like we're we're pretty happy where we are. Yeah. Now, whether or not we want to include the fishing industry into that in the future, that's kind of another discussion. Uh, the fishing industry actually works pretty well right now. There's not there there is a segment of outfitters in Colorado that come into New Mexico that kind of ruffles the feathers of some of the New Mexico outfitters, but in general, the fishing side seems to be able to do a decent job of managing itself yeah. for now. But so they're we'll unregulated. See. But they're so unregulated. Like, so then again, do we really know? Yeah, who exactly. Knows? <laughs> who knows? You who know, knows? Um, and that that like I said, that kind of that. Um, dynamic has always been interesting in that we're going to regulate the big game hunters, but we're not going to, we're not even going to mess with the fishing people. Mm -hmm. And you know, the same stuff is probably happening on either side. Mm -hmm. Um, The the biggest problem for me with having the fishing industry unregulated is that, that just there's like a lack of statistical information Mm -hmm. on the industry. So it makes it very hard to advocate the industry with a lack of statistical information. But with this whole issue with the stream access stuff, we're having to get a lot smarter about how we get those numbers and those facts because they're going to be very important to the future of the fishing industry, the guided fishing industry. Guided fishing industry. Um, Do we want to get into stream access? We want to pick that scab? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Rodney <said that. laughs> we we could go on for a while about that, but yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, that you know, there's, uh, yeah, that's just a tough one. Too tough does, for you guys? No, 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 not no, too tough for us. No, it's not tough. It's just that uh, does it does the council outfitters and guides have a stance on that? We do have a stance. Yes, um, we are squarely in the side of the private property owner on this particular issue. That comes as a big surprise to a lot of anglers and also to a lot of other outfitter and guide associations in different states all across the country. But the fact of the matter is New Mexico is different. Our water base is different. We have torrential flow streams written into our constitution. It, The makeup, the character of the water in New Mexico is different there. We had no navigable waters at the time of statehood, and that has created a situation where the private landowners own the stream bed. The regulation that was in place for 30 years prior to when the law passed in 2015 stated that an individual needed the permission of the landowner in order to fish on waters with private property on both sides, and so that is where the guided fishing industry was built from. Yeah. And because that is how our industry was built, we have very valuable relationships with landowners. There has been, um, you know, high, high, high dollar investments in the riparian areas on private property. And, um, and so that's where we feel we align as an industry. And it's really important to remember, I just can't stress this enough, 70% of New Mexico's waters are already on public land. Yeah. And of the 30% remaining, only 10% is the, of that is fishable. So why is there such a big push for this 10% of waters on private property? It's because they are world-renowned fisheries. Because, because, because of the private property it's owners. It's because it's the me, me, me. And, and not only that, too, but a lot of it, a lot of it really, I, I think, doesn't even have to do with fishing. It's because they want to walk up that dry creek bed mm-hmm. to go to their hunting spots. Yeah. Um, there, there's a lot of... And that's a legitimate fear. You know, you'll hear, oh, no, that would never happen. But no, that is a legitimate fear of the way the pendulum is swinging right now mm-hmm. on this issue. Yeah. Because the Constitution says that the public has the right to yep. perennial and torrential flow waterways, yep. 
once you take navigability out of that conversation, you have access to every dry ditch bank in the state. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that it, it's a tough issue for me, mainly because, you know, I, I believe in the Constitution. Um, and when you when you start looking at the Constitution and the way it's written, um, we have that the right to that access. But and so that's something that you'd, I'd have to say, you know, you need to look at changing. But then when you start changing the Constitution, you start thinking, well, they're trying to change other things about, like, the National Constitution that we don't want them to change. So it gets into a slippery slope. To me, it, it's I, I just don't understand why a public community would want to fight the private community over such a small thing when there's so many more important things, private land access, uh, not private land. Public, public land, land access. access across private property, corner crossings, all of these kind of things that have more impact to more land than this 10% that you're talking about. And and I don't understand why um, and the, the corporations would try and the fight that. The constitutional argument has very has been very singularly focused within you know the media of this issue mm-hmm. and everything but it's important to recognize that private landowners have constitutional rights also yes, they do. and while there's this portion of the constitution that may give a public uh, the right to the waters of New Mexico perennial or torrential it also gives a private landowner the right to the ownership of that stream bed yeah. of those non-navigable waters and that that's well, and, and important and one of you the thing, you know one of the biggest things that that the proponent for the stream access, the proponents for stream access are, are using is that AG's opinion from a couple of couple of years yeah. ago, and I, I always have to remind people that that was an opinion. Yeah, uh-huh. it does not change state law. Correct. The only way that you can change state law is one through the legislature, or two through uh, a ruling by a court, yep. uh, a court of record, mm-hmm. and so. Um, that's that's one of the main things that has me just so seeing red about what's going on right now. I was reading some of the stuff on social media um, about, you know, as I'm sure you guys know, at the last game commission meeting, after they came out of executive session, they had basically notified all of the, the public that the department had requested a declaratory judgment from a court on this issue. Um, and so I see all of this in social media basically saying, oh, the law is overturned. The law is overturned. No, no it not. is not. Yep. The law is still in effect until it is, you know, changed by the Rule legislature the or once the court yep. makes a determination, which will be years and years and you from now. you can guarantee now. that the court will make a determination and that it will be taken to a higher court until exactly. it ends up being at the Supreme Court. Exactly. Yeah, which could and be in 10, the meantime, 20 years. People still need to follow the law, which says that you cannot walk or wade on private property through a stream bed where there is private property on both sides of the stream. And there are so many people that seem to misunderstand that. And it's actually dangerous because it's going to get, you know, well-intentioned people who just don't understand what this whole issue means. And they get so wrapped up in the misinformation being perpetuated by all of these different outlets and they're going to end up trespassing and you know landowners are serious they take yeah. trespass seriously yes they i do. mean you wouldn't let somebody just like swim laps in your pool in the backyard so <laughs> nope. 
Well, <laughs> I, and that's something that I, you know, that I always bring up when people talk about trespass. They think they they seem to have this idea that it's okay if it's a big piece of land, and oftentimes you can't reason with them. But you know, it's like me saying. You saying, well, you've got a big piece of land, so I can just go hunt sheds or walk up the stream or do do whatever, is like me saying, well, you know what? I feel like uh, an apple off the tree in the back in your backyard, so I'm gonna walk through your house. Yep. Well, it's different. No, it's not. It's just a bigger backyard, and we are public land hunters. We we hunt public land all the time. We are big proponents of public land, but I'm also a proponent of private land rights. Um, that's kind of what this, built, this country was built on, actually, yes. if you think about it. It wasn't built on the public land rights. It was built on private land rights. Um, again, I am a public land hunter, and I love our public lands and will continue to fight for them. But like Rodney was saying, why the majority of our fishable public waters or fishable waters are on public land already? Mm-hmm. Why are we fighting this fight? How about let's start trying to work with the landowners to open up some of these landlocks, uh, pieces of public ground. Exactly. And they're going to be a lot Money. less likely to come to the table for those kind of nego- negotiations when we're hammering them over this very small yeah, issue. When, when we're trying to trudge exactly. through their exactly. waters and destroy their riparian areas. And, and honestly, you know, going back to your point about, um, you know, the big game populations and the health of the resource. That's the same thing with this issue with stream access, trudging through water to access fishery on a private property is not beneficial to the resource, Mm -hmm. to the fishery base. So can we look at this issue from what would be beneficial, you know, most beneficial to the resource instead of something that would be so damaging? And that should be our number one goal of all of these things is is what's better, what's best for the wildlife, the fish, the stream, the land, all of that. That's what our number one goal should be, period. And, and, you know, a lot of people tout um, other states, Montana, Idaho, where you can can walk up those stream beds or, or whatever. It is what it is. Well, and the Montana law honestly is changing, and yeah. that whole—that's a fluid situation, pun intended, I guess. Uh, <laughs> that's up there in Montana that's going on right now. But, but you can't say New Mexico should do this or that based on what another state does because Montana has water. They have water. Montana, Idaho has water. Idaho has water. Those are navigable yeah. waterways. They were navigable at statehood, and yeah. they're navigable now, mm-hmm. which changes the dynamic and the ownership of the stream bed. A and then B. Their high water mark might be, you know, like only three feet from where it is at the highest point to where it is at the lowest point. Our high water mark is like a dry ditch bank to a five foot yeah. goalie wash. Yeah. You know, it's a it's a dramatic difference. For, yeah. yeah. Dramatic difference. Yeah, it's 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 apples and oranges. We you know, we don't have their constitution, we have our own constitution. We mm-hmm. don't have the same landscape, the same water flow. It it shouldn't be compared at all. Yeah. It's yeah. That's one of those, one of those issues where you know everybody gets so fired up about it. But that's where Rodney and I are on it. It's this is not the fight we need. 
No. Mm-hmm. We have not. so many more important issues that we, and could, it goes, that we could talk you about. you know, back to misperception also. There's so many people that just look at it at face value. They think that the 2015 law took something away from them. They've been led to believe that. Mm-hmm. The 2015 law codified 30 years of Department of Came and Fish rule. Yeah. Nothing has changed. It's all the same. So uh, it just goes back to the whole misperception. You know, there's just yeah. so many people that don't really, they don't really see both sides of the issue. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right, right to the statistics of the Wildlife Federation's allocation of tags. Yeah. It's it's just a misconception. Uh, they're using tricky stuff to make the general public believe something that is not true. Yeah, it's un- unethical. Yeah, in my is. opinion. Pissed me off. I know. That's <laughs> why we did the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah. What other trails you want to you know you want to roll down? What yeah. what other things are, yeah, does the council covered most of the controversial stuff? So that's good. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we won't even did in that one. Which one? The gaming department. So in the game commission. Over the stream access. Over the stream stuff. access. Well, and I, I can't. I don't really want to talk in detail about that, anyways, because it's it's so new. Very new. And it, we're it, not exactly we don't have all the sure. Yeah, we don't so have all the information. And actually, the the um, editorial that the Wildlife Federation published that had a quite a bit of information on it um, was it's all sort of speculative mm-hmm. because. What's surprise, public surprise. Right. out there is not much. Yeah. So you know we ne- we need to give it time to roll out to see what's really going to happen, and then and what uh, the what the what facts the, are mm-hmm. the the basis of that. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, basically, what it was is just a you know request for a declaratory judgment, and then the commission will have to respond to that yeah. one way or another. So we'll see what happens. Very interesting. Very, Very interesting. Um, you haven't said much, Rodney. No, no, I've been quiet. You don't want to get me on a roll. I do want to get you on a roll. That's what makes a fun podcast. I'll get, uh, anytime we get to talking about the Wildlife Federation, I get ramped up. (laughs) I just, yeah. It's it's frustrating. It is. And honestly, I like Jesse. You know, like, I have a good relationship with him. We have a good working relationship. I feel like our lines of communication are open. We might not agree 95% of the time. But but I like him as a person. Sure. But I I just don't really understand their strategy. Yeah, you know, it's something that we've talked about a lot on this podcast. You know... Wildlife is, it's not just one sector. It's not just public or private. It's an ecosystem, and everything has to play a role. And as stewards of this land, we should all play our part and help others where we can um, and quit fighting over it and enjoy it. We're only here for a short time, and if we if we could quit bickering about um, and, and we're, all sides are to blame, you know, public land owner or public land hunters, you know, they leave gates open, they cut fences, they do stupid crap, they leave trash, you know, and private land owners are assholes when they lock gates that, that shouldn't be locked and, 
and tell people to get off public land. Tell people to get off public land. land. You know, there's 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 bad people on both sides, but there's also a lot of good people, and mm-hmm. the vast majority of them are probably good people. Mm-hmm. Um, but even those good people, given bad information, you know, they tend to just kind of lock up, mm-hmm. and and then that doesn't open the lines of communication for us to be able to do. Uh, what is necessary to make sure that our kids and grandkids can enjoy the same things that we enjoy right now. Yeah. And I wish that that could stop. Of course, I, I'm just as bad. I get pissed off and cuss the New Mexico Wildlife Federation. Um, and, you know, but. Yeah, well, that's, think- that's one thing that I, you know, I, I struggle with um, from a policy level because the, you know, Division within our own industry is so rampant. We eat our and else. yeah, we and eat our here so really what we're facing is a much, much higher level threat. Yeah, and they, you know, being the anti-hunting crowd in general, groups in general, they are focused on one thing, mm-hmm. and that is completely doing away with hunting entirely. They don't care how we do it. They, they would just as soon watch us, you know. And they're and they're sneaky. Implode from within. And and they're good at it. They are. And they're much better funded than we are. Um, I, I don't know I, that I, they're I better even, funded. I didn't even talk to you about I think it. that it's just that we're split into so many factions that we fight each other. We don't. If we yeah, they're better funded because all of their money is for one purpose. All of our money that's is what spread I, out. That's what I'm saying. Else. They're not better funded. They're just using their funds yeah. wisely mm-hmm. because they're focusing mm-hmm. on one thing at a time. Uh, versus, you know, and and this is uh, you know something that I've been thinking about for a while is you you have all all these different nonprofit conservation groups. You know, RMEF, um, Mule Deer Foundation, Wild, National Wild Turkey Federation. Um, you can go on naming them forever and ever. Mm-hmm. It seems like a new one pops up every 10 days. Um, I, I think it, it would be beneficial, much like the state now has an outdoor recreation board. I think it would be beneficial for the industry to put together a board of all these special interest groups and start working together on things, you know. At a state level? Yeah. So I, I'm not sure if you're familiar. It, we kind of have something like that on a federal level. Uh-huh. So New Mexico Council of Outfitters and Guides is a member of the Professional Outfitters and Guides of America group. Okay. Um, and we have a position on the American Wildlife Conservation Partners, which is like a collaborative of um, a lot of different conservation organizations. And basically our goal is to create policy recommendations to present to whatever administration is in office. So we're currently working on, um, the, the next, um, document that will be presented to the next administration. Um, and, and yeah, and, and it, it, it's helpful to be part of that group and to see, you know, how everyone kind of working together on a national level, but we, we definitely don't have anything like that at the state level. No, I, and, you know, talking, we did a podcast, and who knows when it'll be released, before or after this, who knows, but yeah, um, did a podcast with, you know, the Mulder Foundation, um, and Rodney, prior to doing the podcast, went to one of their meetings, and they were talking about, well, this is what we want to do for Mulder, and he brought up a really great point of, well, have have you thought about what this is going to do for the other species? Mm-hmm. I think so many times... 
it, you know, if you're a part of one of those groups or if you are one of those groups, you get so focused on the singular specific mission that you have, you forget about there's all this, these other things that you have to take into consideration, mm-hmm. you know. Advocacy being one. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so. that's it's one thing that always uh, irritates me a little bit about some of the conservation groups is that they, uh, and, and really the gear manufacturing groups like Sitka and not necessarily Kuyu because they've been loyal, um, but some of the other uh, gear manufacturers that have historically been sponsors mm-hmm. of Council of Outfitters and Guides have suddenly said, well, we're only going to donate to conservation groups. If you don't have a conservation mission built into your nonprofit, then we're not going to support you. But what I wish the conservation groups and the, you know, the gear manufacturers understood is that it's, it's a, it's not mutually exclusive. Like it's mutually beneficial. The advocacy groups are working to maintain the protective laws that enable a sportsman to pursue their passion, you know, and the conservation groups, they provide a vital role as well. We're working together. We're not, we're not separate. Having lots of good, healthy mule deer is wonderful, but if we can't go hunt them, <laughs> yeah, know? I mean, then uh, they'll all be eaten by the lions exactly. that are overrunning. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, so I, I read that, and this might be completely off squirrel, but uh, I read an article. Um, apparently, in California, they passed a law where banning the possession of. Oh wait, which one? Um, so it it requires you to. To purchase ammo, you have to have the same kind of background check and all of that that you oh. do for firearms. So this has drastically reduced the number of hunters. Yeah. Because they're just not wanting to go through all of the rigmarole. And, and, um, so basically you're saying there's an opportunity for a black market in uh, California for... Right, right, mm-hmm. for <laughs> ammo. Um, but, you know, like you said, these advocacy groups, that's a chance to catch stuff like that and cut it off. Um, exactly, because that's it. Doesn't seem like that's a direct uh, attack on hunters, but it sure did cut the number of hunters in California. Well, it, it is a direct. There are direct attacks on hunters. Mm-hmm. They just passed the ban of uh, possessing African animals in California. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like what what do, what what purpose does that and, and, even? And honestly, you know, um, it. It's all it's all a, a cyclical thing, you know. You and I don't know. I feel like it kind of starts with the outfitting industry. Once you divide your interests between your residents and non, and your non-residents, the first thing to go is your outfitting industry because your outfitting industry is completely dependent on non-resident clientele. Once your outfitting industry goes, then you no longer have a an a, a trade association, an advocacy group that is speaking on behalf of that demographic. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, like in New Mexico, we're the only sportsman association that is watching things like that. Like yeah. the wildlife trafficking bill that passed, it, it passed and is likely going to be signed. But the first draft of that bill was crazy. It as, applied to like every are. single species under the CITES Act, which could include like anything down to even, you know, like New Mexico bobcat. And so we were the ones that provided that um, amendment to the legislation to restrict it to CITES Appendix 1. But, you know, when you don't have an advocacy group that's watching those state laws, then just one by one, things just are whittled away, you know, and your rights just are whittled away one at a time. Yep. 
Yeah. Death by a thousand cuts. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I won't go down that road. I've talked about it a million times, so won't even talk <laughs> think, about that. I think we'll see a resurgence of the hunter in California. They're, they're overrun by predators. They're, they're, there's there's going to be a breaking point at some point. There yeah. has to be, yeah. you know, a change at some point. Um, yeah, we had that discussion, too. It's like hunters are paying to do the job that you're having. That your tax dollars are paying. Tax dollars are paying yeah. to do right now, exactly. yeah. Exactly. Doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. What else, Carrie? What else you got on the plate? Huh? I mean, I I can't think of anything. I think we covered all the controversial stuff, and I mean, of course, we'll be there in the legislative session, making sure that. I guess that's another point that I I want people to understand is that Council of Outfitters and Guides. Yes, we are advocating the industry of the outfitter and guide, but we're advocating hunting and fishing mm-hmm. in New Mexico. Yeah. I mean, we are looking out for the best interest of the hunter and angler. And so that that includes everyone. So, um, you know, we'll be there. And there's a lot of things that we work with the Wildlife Federation and Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, although I don't think they have a a full-time lobbyist. But Wildlife Federation does. And we work together a lot in the legislature to make sure that the general hunting and fishing laws stay favorable. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, So... How did you get into the Council of Outfitters and Guides? It's it's always Super a, random. an interesting. Well, I ask everybody because um, how people kind of got into stuff is really interesting and and gives you a little bit of insight into why they're doing what they're doing. You mm-hmm. know, do they do they really believe in the in the mission and 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 riding for the brand type of thing, or mm-hmm. is it just kind of a, I'm a spoke spokesperson <laughs> for the? <laughs> For the the brand. Yeah, so actually my story is kind of interesting, or at least maybe I'm biased, but I think it is. Uh, I was working in uh, agricultural lending. I have a degree in agricultural, a master's degree in agricultural economics, and just kind of needing something new. And I had a dear friend whose husband was an outfitter. They had a position open, the Council of Outfitters and Guides, and it was like political, a lobbying position, and I was totally underqualified for it. And I had no idea what it would include. I had zero background in hunting. I fished as a kid maybe, you know, whatever, handful of times with my dad. My husband is a hunter, so I didn't have anything against it. Didn't have any, you know, reason to dislike it or whatever. Um, But I went to the interview thinking there's no way I'll ever get this job. Totally not qualified. Um, And then they hired me, and I thought, well, that's weird. I guess I'll, like do this for a couple years as a resume builder it should be a learning experience we'll see what happens and the first trade show I went to was the Wild Sheep Foundation show in Reno and it blew my mind I had no idea that this industry existed like I had no idea and I fell in love with sheep you know it like there's that whole thing out there like either you're a sheep person or you're not a sheep person and it turns out I'm totally a sheep person (laughs) totally fell in love with sheep and um just knew that like this this would be my passion I always thought you know my roots are in ag never thought I would leave ag I I always saw myself in an agricultural industry and it was like just blew my whole world apart to find that hunting is where I fit better. Well, and you're actually uh, um, 
didn't start hunting until yeah. you got into the job, right? Right. Yeah. I and actually at first when I first took the job, I I, I didn't really think that I was going to start hunting either. Didn't really plan it. But then it was like once I kind of was talking with my board and like going to some of these shows and talking with the people at the, you know, at the booth, I realized like I have got to get a firsthand perspective of this because I can't communicate with yeah, these people gotta, unless I know to, what they're talking about. Yeah. On a, like it's on one thing to level. know the policy side, sure. but it's totally another side to know like the cultural side mm-hmm. of the industry. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm kind of a novice, but. That's all right. I'm Everybody's got to start somewhere. <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm I'm similar. I mean, I I did hunt a little bit when I was growing up with my dad, but not near as much as Rodney. Rodney grew up hunting, fishing, kind of day in day out type of thing. Um, I got into it a little bit later in life, but yeah, same thing. Thought I'd be an ag or mm-hmm. you know working for the Forest Service doing range stuff, uh, but got into it and man, it's just. It's yeah. it's a great place to be. Yeah, it, it's neat to hear you say that about not realizing how big the industry is. I've hunted my whole life, like Kyle said. I've been fishing since I was a kid with my family. I didn't know it was that big. Um, I never realized, you know, growing up, you kind of, you know, what do I want to do with my life? What am I going to do? Where, what kind of career am I going to have? I didn't even know that that was an option. That there was careers in hunting. Uh, it was just something the family did. You know, it's it something that we did. It was fun. It was a pastime. Um, and and then starting this, you know, what we do here, there's so much. It's such a huge industry, and there's so much that goes on in it. So many different things that that uh, connect to it. It's pretty cool. Yeah. And the money that is generated for <laughs> conservation of those shows, it is just mind-blowing. And I hear a lot of people, um, you know, kind of talk bad about that especially with the sheep program in new mexico you know they're very critical of someone willing to pay two hundred and forty thousand dollars for an enhancement tag in new mexico but i think you have to realize i mean there there wouldn't be sheep in new mexico without that enhancement tag program those enhancement tags fund the on the ground conservation and that's how it works with you know the the elk foundation enhancement tags the mule deer foundation enhancement tags and and they're just doing phenomenal things for conservation. It's, it's really great. I mean, so, yeah, whatever. It's a rich man paying a lot of money for the opportunity but, but to hunt. But thank but God the, they're there. But here's know? the other, I mean, and here, here's the deeper, I guess, the deeper thought behind that is when did we, when did we become so jealous about people doing what they want to do with their money. That's what right. America is. Um, I mean, you don't want, I don't want the government telling me what to do with my money. I don't want other people telling me what to do with my money. Um, you know, the without getting too much into it, the poli- the, the social politics in, in the country right now are a little bit scary because they are moving towards that, oh, well, what does he have the right to, to do that? Because he worked and he made that money. He can do whatever the heck he wants mm-hmm. with it. If he right. wants to buy a $200,000 T-sheep tag, cool. And, and thank God us. he does. Absolutely. You know, like, would you rather him be spending $250,000 on a yacht? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I'd rather him be spending it on a sheep tag, and then all that money goes back to the, the conservation program. Yeah. Which, in turn, would eventually possibly 
give us the opportunity to go hunt sheep. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the only reason we're hunting sheep in New Mexico. And and our sheep program is outstanding. Phenomenal. I mean, we're really widely recognized as having a great sheep program. Yeah. Yeah, I I think I said this in another podcast, but people don't know for for New Mexico not being known for even being a state (laughs) in the union. Um, people, re- I, I don't think we do enough to tout the accomplishments of, um, the wildlife industry in New Mexico. We, we do some great stuff, great stuff. Like you said, um, a lot, a lot of the techniques and the things that are being done here are being mirrored and copied all over the nation because we're doing great stuff. Yeah. So. Yeah, and it's something we've been working with with the with the tourism department for quite some time that I think we finally have kind of got a foot in the door. I mean, I've been told previously in years previous that, yeah, we're not going to market hunting because there's a social stigma attached mm-hmm. to it. And they've told me that to my face, but now we're kind of creeping in. Um, but, you know, to this point, really the tourism department doesn't even recognize the hunting industry in New Mexico. And it's so so in contrast with when you go to these shows. Everybody knows where New Mexico is. Everybody. Everybody. It's a, it's a destination. Yeah. Everybody yeah. wants it, to hunt New Mexico. Exactly. Everybody wants to hunt New Mexico. And, and you know, the outfitting industry, we're a tourism-based industry. Every dollar that comes into our industry is tourism. Yeah. And they're all out-of-state tourism dollars. So, um, but I do think we're making, we're making headway with the Department of Tourism. They've been far more supportive of the industry recently. That's and, good. And it's, it's great because... Yeah. We definitely need. Wouldn't them have expected that. Yeah. Given the current status of, of like you said, the stigma on, on yeah. social stigma yeah. on the hunting. Yeah. So that's really good to hear. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad that there there are efforts being made to try and break out of that stigma to try and really articulate what hunting is. Um, it's like I I've told, um, some of my guides. We, we have the facts. We have the data behind us to, to tell the great story that hunting is. We just have to be better about telling it in a language that people understand. Mm-hmm. We have to be much better at doing that. Yeah. So, What else, Rodney? That's it, man. That's it. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you guys for inviting me. I so really give us, uh, it. Yeah, before, we, before you go, kind of give us... Uh, how people can get involved if they would like to give us your contact information for council outfitters and guides sure yeah so um our website is really easy www.nmoutfitters.com and um you can find information on how to join there we have a sportsman membership, 25 bucks a year it's definitely not going to break the bank and um basically that gets you all of the newsletters quarterly newsletters the annual magazine all of the game commission recaps and i mean even if you're not uh and you guys are at every game oh every well actually so this i didn't i didn't go to last most but but now that they have their webcast yeah makes it a lot easier to be able to so we we talked about rodney and i've talked about earlier that it's they tend to have those meetings during the week in the middle of the day, so it makes it really hard for Wednesday to the working man to go. So you know, what's interesting, though, is that they tried to have them on Saturday a couple of years back, and nobody showed and up. Show up. Nobody nobody showed up. up so, that, I mean, it's easier for the department me. if yeah. they don't have to pay uh, overtime but, and everything. Um, 
this is this is one way you know um kind of get involved in some of these groups um i know like i said i know you personally and how involved you are in the game commission um so it do your research make sure it's a group that you want to join don't yeah. take my word for it don't take carrie's word for it or rodney's word for it do your your own research and make sure it's something that aligns with your values but um especially accounts outfitters and guides um they they keep a really good finger on the pulse of what's happening. So, um, so that's a great way to get your voice heard if you can't make those meetings yourself. And, yep. and you know, and, and if you're already a member of the Wildlife Federation, I would encourage you to join the Council of Outfitters and Guides, too, because you're going to get, you'll get the resident perspective from the Wildlife Federation. You're going to get the non-resident perspective from our organization, and maybe that will, you know, drive you somewhere in the middle. Give you, give you, <laughs> right. give you some... Broader, broader perspective. perspective. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, good. Uh, anything else? No, I mean, you can email me, info at nmoutfitters.com. I think that's about it. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming and joining us. Um, I enjoyed the podcast. Hope our listeners do. Rodney looks like he's going to fall asleep. I'm not going to fall asleep. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to be nice still. You're trying to be nice. <laughs> He's still, he's like, this is what I would have said Yeah, if I'll, I had I'll said something. I'll say all of that afterwards. <laughs> you know me. You know me. Come on. Controversy, you know, makes good good listening. Yeah, no. No, I'm just kidding. Thank you, Carrie. We yeah, really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, guys. Um, appreciate the invite. Yeah, and uh, maybe down the road we'll get you back on. And Sounds good. See what else is going on. Sounds good. Thanks, awesome. guys. Thanks for joining. Adios. Adios, guys. Thanks for joining Not a Grande Outdoors podcast. Come follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. And don't forget about our website, www.notagrandeoutdoors.com. Adios. Adios.